We'll be picking up where we left off in the book of Jonah this morning, chapter 1. I'll ask the ushers to pass out Bibles. and You can go ahead and raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's always good to be examining what comes from the pulpit directly from God's unchanging, timeless, authoritative word uh, yourself. So I would encourage you all to have a Bible in hand. We will have scripture up on the screen. Pastor Brian did a great job last week orienting our hearts and minds in the first three, in the opening verses of, of, of the book of Jonah and orienting us proper as we look forward to spending today and the next few weeks in this great book. I want to start this morning by inviting you into a day in the life of the Delgados. Uh-oh. Davi is not here this morning. In the first service, yeah. Every evening, at the end of every day, my wife Davi and I, we, we watch an episode of whatever show we're watching, whether it's MasterChef, any MasterChef uh, followers out there? Whether it's MasterChef or whatever we're following, we watch an episode at the, at usually every single night. And at the end of every evening, uh, every night, I have a bowl of yogurt and berries. Unhealthy nights, that is. Which is most nights. But most nights, every night, I'm having a bowl of yogurt and berries. And it is often that this is how the scene unfolds with me getting my yogurt. Can we just pause for a second? I'm going to go get my yogurt now. Okay, sure. I'll be right back. Do, 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 down the stairs. La di da 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 da. Back up the stairs, back in the room. Oh. What? I forgot the yogurt. What? What were you doing down there? I don't even know. <laughs> Am I the only one that stuff like that happens to? I don't think so. Maybe, it's, maybe for you, it's, it's on your daily commute, whether to or from work. You're driving home and all of a sudden, you just zone out. Till you get home, you regain consciousness, and a chill comes over you as you realize, I don't remember a single thing <laughs> from my ride home. It's scary. It's scary, isn't it? That, that this can just go about its way and lose consciousness. My, my central control just kind of pops out on a pod and drifts off at times or falls asleep. It's scary. Now, for most, all of us, this can also be an illustration of our spiritual life, can it? There's seasons of vibrant spiritual life where we're in tune with God, especially when we first come to Christ, we're first awakened to the, the fullness of the beauties of who He is, all that He's done for us, and we're lit up 
and we follow Him and we, we choose to commit ourselves to Him and eventually, day after day, month after month, year after year, we find ourselves in a groove. We grow accustomed to our daily practices. Month after month, year after year. Now these grooves and routines, they're not necessarily bad. They're good and necessary to establish rhythms of spiritual discipline. Remember, all throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we notice the, ne the necessity of having rhythms of spiritual disciplines. While at the same time, there's a lot of religiosity in our day, isn't there? A lot of, lot of cultural Christianity, the faith and practice just becoming a, a normative way of life. My, one of my friends calls it churchianity. Sometimes it feels like we're so accustomed to being Christian that it's hard to remember what a biblical Christian looks like. Right? I mean, this is just human nature here. I'm not even indicting anyone. This is just, this is just making observations of what can happen over time in a place where Christianity has been so common. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. If you think that you're standing strong, be careful that you do not fall. Hmm. How can we fall when we're standing strong? What we're going to see in today's passage is the heart of Jonah's sin, spiritual apathy, which manifests in all kinds of pride and rebellion. Now remember, by the end of last week's message, there are two questions on the table. One, what will happen to this prophet who defies God's commands? And two, what will happen to this great city, Nineveh, immersed deeply in sin? This morning's passage will deal with the first question. What will come of this prophet of God who defies God and flees from the presence of the Lord? Let me pray, and then we'll continue on in the story, picking up in verse 4. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. Your word is like a window in which through it we see you more clearly. Your word is like a mirror in which in it we see ourselves in view of who you are, Lord. Would you help us this morning hear your word, and would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, turn your word into life in us. Help us to see and believe the beauties of the gospel and know how to respond with hearts full of love and faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, let's pick up Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read the first block here, verses 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Okay. So first, as we saw last week in the opening verses, God calls Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. But Jonah arises and flees to Tarshish. Here in verse 4, Jonah's on his way to Tarshish, but the Lord hurls a great wind and mighty tempest or storm. Now, two things I want you to keep your eye on here as we work our way through the chapter. The first is the name of God in the story. Where you see the Lord in all caps, this stands for Yahweh. Up to this point, the focus in the story has been on Jonah and Yahweh. That is, the personal name of the God of Israel. Yahweh is the distinct covenantal name of the one true God who reveals himself personally to Moses. Back in Exodus 3, I am who I am. Yahweh. Second word to note is this word to hurl, repeated several times. Notice the connection between hurling and salvation as we work through this chapter. What you're going to see is the hurling is salvific for God's people and his plans. So in verse 4, the Lord hurls a great wind and mighty sea storm. So mighty that the ship threatens to break up. The actual Hebrew word therefore threatens is to ponder, to consider. In other words, Yahweh moves, the sea stirs up, and the ship considers its ways. The ship is personified here. Just like what we saw last week, remember? Jonah pays her fare, the ship's fare. Here, the ship considers giving up, breaking apart. Then in verse 5, the mariners or sailors aboard the ship, they're struck with fear. So afraid that they cry out, each to their own gods. Elohim here, many gods. So what do they do? They start hurling their cargo overboard. Now, a ship like this, we can see from other places in Scripture, ship like this on the Mediterranean at this time might be carrying things like precious metals, livestock, ivory, and all kinds of other valuables. 
So they're hurling their cargo overboard. Their hurling is likely for both practical and religious reasons. One, they're, as the scripture says, they're lightening the ship to try to prevent it from taking on water in the sea storm. And two, they're polytheists, meaning they believe in many gods. So one of the many gods must be upset. Maybe it's the Canaanite sea god, Yam. So they would be hurling the cargo overboard then to also try to appease the god that's stirring them up. Both ways, notice what's important here. They all unite in seeking salvation from the storm by sacrificing cargo and praying to the gods. Notice what the narrator is showing us. Everyone's awake. Everyone's responding to God's actions. The sea responds. The ship responds. The sailors respond. Everyone's alert. At attention. But Jonah goes down into the inner depth of the ship and lays down, falling into a deep sleep. At the point when we would all look to Jonah to rise up, intercede, he descends down, down, down. From verse 1, down to Joppa, down to the ship, down to the depth of the ship, he lays down into a deep sleep. The animate prophet Jonah eventually becomes inanimate. At a time when even the inanimate ship becomes animate. You see? As Pastor Brian mentioned last week, and here we see all the more, his physical dissension is an image of his sin. His spiritual dissension. He falls into a spiritual slumber. Now the irony here is that he probably believes in what he's doing. Up to this point in the story, one thing is clear. Jonah believes he's in control. He's pursuing what's best for him. It's that simple. And in his upright belief, he descends down. You see? Jonah is now out cold. And the captain enters. What? What are you doing, you sleeper? Don't you see what's happening? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps he'll give us something so that we don't perish. Wow. Did you catch that from last week? There were two words Brian told you to tuck away 
He didn't pull them out yet. Here we pull them back out. The captain repeats God's call to Jonah, and he doesn't even know it. The captain comes in and says, Arise, call out. Now, you would think when Jonah hears these words, he is stricken with fear and trembling. He can't escape. But no. He's become spiritually paralyzed. You see the irony? The captain is pleading for any thought from the gods that could save them. Jonah knows exactly what needs to be done, which came directly from the one true God, and he doesn't say a word. Hmm. Now, let's zoom out for a moment. Consider something with me. If Jonah represents Israel, God's covenant people in this story, and the sailors represent godless people of the world, then how do we find ourselves responding to the tumultuous seas around us in our day? It's worth thinking about. Do we rise up and intercede, stepping into God's rescue mission for humanity? A, a hum amid a humanity longing for salvation, trying to seek salvation in all kinds of ways and lost apart from the one true God of the Bible? Or do we too withdraw to the inner parts of our ship? Believing that is where safety and security can be found. And in our uprightness in belief, do we descend down, down, down? It's a big question that we have to reckon with while we work through this. Jonah likely believed that he was simply making his own decisions, determining what was best for him, which should have no effect on anyone else. And we know he couldn't be farther from the truth. Is this not the nature of sin? He can't see it. This whole mess the storm, the loss of cargo, the near destruction of the ship, the sailors' lives on the line, it's all his fault. It's all because of his disobedience. I like how one commentator put it, Jonah is a relational wrecking ball. It's true. Hopefully he turns soon to put a stop to all this turmoil. I have to move on now but I can't let this one go. Look, there's another way to think about this. How do we respond when God is clearly trying to confront us with our sin? Us. Me too. 
I'm not exempt from this word. Please hear me, fam. I'm not preaching at you. You better believe I'm the one that has to wrestle through this for three weeks leading up to today. It's not easy to preach sermons like this. Because we preachers and teachers, we're held to stricter standards. We're in the same boat, family. How do we respond when God is trying to confront us with our sin? Engage, withdraw. Be alert. Stay awake to God's word and his ways. He's always at work. Be attuned. Let's read on, 7 through 10. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Okay, now, since Jonah has not responded to anything yet, the sailors make another attempt to try to figure out who or what must have upset the gods. They cast lots. This is a kind of ancient dice rolling, but with pebbles and sticks of a kind. This is what, what people would do to reveal the will of the gods. Even the Israelites would cast lots in discerning God's will. Lo and behold, the lot falls on Jonah. So they grill him with these questions. They want to know, what is the cause, the cause of all this? Who are you? Where are you from? Of what people? And for the first time, Jonah speaks. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh. Now at this confession, the reader, us, is supposed to go, <laughs> yeah, right. It's another joke. Like last week, Jonah Innocent dove, son of faithfulness. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a joke. Jonah goes on, The God of heaven, Elohim, who made the sea and the land. <sighs> the nerve of Jonah. You can imagine this scene. What? You upset the God of the sea on this boat? The men are now overcome with exceeding fear, the word says. What is this that you have done? Interesting side note. This question echoes the very question asked of Adam and Eve in the garden while they were hiding. And the narrator speaks again, 
they knew that he was fleeing from Yahweh because he had told them. Now, we don't know exactly when this was. Could have been right there on the boat, but I, along with many others, am convinced that he likely told them this, that he was fleeing somehow before he stepped on the boat. Remember from last week? Remember he paid the ship's fare? Well, it probably went something like this before they departed. Where to? Tarshish. Reason? Well, I'm running from my religious duties before Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? My God. Whatever. You got the fare? Yes. In fact, I'll pay for the whole trip so long as you take me. Step aboard. So verse 9 here is big because here Jonah professes who the one true God is, Yahweh, the God of heaven, maker of all the earth and the seas. This is pivotal because now the sailors know who they need to turn to for their deliverance and they know why this storm is upon them. Jonah's rebellion. Consider at this point another or a sad reality noted here. Too often it's those outside the community of God's people that can see most clearly whether his people's behavior is lining up with their belief or not. The prophet Jonah was blind, and the sailors are the ones calling him out. What? You're a Hebrew? You say you fear this Yahweh God? Well, why would you act like this? That doesn't line up. Hmm. Consider one more impact from this confession. As I mentioned, the narrator expects us, the readers, to hear Jonah and respond, oh, What? Yeah, right. What a hypocrite. How could anybody be so arrogant? Some food for thought. If you stood up in your school, workplace, among your neighbors, or friends, and said, I am a Christian. I follow Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, full of grace and truth. How would everybody respond around you? Right, yeah, gentle. <laughs> Sit down. 
or would they say, wow, that's a person of conviction. Their faith is real. I've seen it. Consider our ways, family. Consider our ways. Let's read 11 through 16. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the men put the ball in Jonah's court. What do you think we should do? Notice he doesn't say, take me back. I failed. I have to return and respond faithfully to my God. No. He says, hurl me overboard. Then it'll stop. It's because of me anyway. Now, at first glance, one might think, does Jonah repent here? Is this humility? A selfless act on his part for the well-being of the sailors? Maybe. Some believe that. I'm not convinced because there's no acknowledgement of what God has made clear he needs to do. I believe, along with many others, that his heart is hardening here all the more. It's stubbornness we're hearing. In other words, he's saying, I'd rather die than turn from my ways and submit to God's will and call. So what did the sailors do? Just sit down. And they row harder, harder and harder. They try to turn around and get back to the land. They don't want to kill him, especially knowing now that he's a prophet of Yahweh. So they row hard, but to no avail. They're down to the last option. This brother's got to go. Or we're all done for. But first, verse 14, they call out to Yahweh directly now. With great trepidation, Scripture highlights, and great humility, they call out to the one true God, have mercy on us, remove the guilt from our hands on this man's life. They're actually invoking scripture from Deuteronomy 21 and they don't even know it. They acknowledge you are God. You do as you please. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and immediately 
the storm quiets. Salvation has come. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, the word says. And they respond by sacrificing and making vows to him. The sailors have converted. They've come to true faith in Yahweh. Notice the arc of their fear. First in verse 5, the sailors feared the sea and the gods. Then verse 10, after Jonah's confession, they were exceedingly fearful. Then verse 16, after they prayed to Yahweh, he delivers them, they fear him exceedingly. What's important to note is that this Hebrew word for fear is also translated worship. Reverential fear. This is worship here. Fear, fear, worship. Their worry has turned into worship. They respond in awe and wonder, repentance and faith. Does this story ring a bell? Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? It's pretty amazing. At some point this week, I would encourage you to go read Mark 4 and see how close, how identical the parallels are with, from Jonah right here in chapter 1 and Jesus with the disciples on the ship in the storm at, sea, at, the, at the Sea of Galilee. It's remarkable. Check out Mark 4 this week. The story so far is both tragic and exciting. Jonah, the prophet of God, is really a spectacular disappointment. He's a great disappointment. He's the bad guy. Jonah is the bad guy, and the bad guys become the good guys. What a flip. Jonah says he fears the Lord. The sailors actually fear the Lord. And yet, what doesn't change is that God is sovereign over all things for sure. He is merciful. He's zealously committed to his rescue mission. And nothing can thwart his plans. Not even his rebellious people. That's clear. That doesn't change one bit. In fact, in his great sovereignty, he used a heartless confession to save a whole ship. Can you imagine what God would do through his people if we truly cared about others outside the community, pursued them, showing and sharing about the merciful, gracious goodness of our God, with God with hearts full of love. He would work wonders. Wonders. As we work through the chapter, the big idea of this passage takes shape. A true fear of the Lord consists of faithfulness to His Lordship. True faith 
consists of being alert to who he is, what he says, and what he's doing. He is God. We are his children. We are children. He speaks. He moves. We respond. Alertness and action. A true fear of the Lord consists of faithfulness to his lordship. Amen? So, next week in chapter 2, we'll... Wait! We forgot about Jonah. He's plummeting. We got to finish this chapter. Let's read verse 17. We almost forgot. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, now. Now, next week, we'll spend our time debating exactly what kind of great fish this was. Maybe it was a sperm whale. Maybe it was a, a giant sea monster. Brian's convinced it was a megalodon. Next week, we'll examine all the possibilities. All the possibilities we'll spend our time next week. Or not. Jonah and the whale. Not really. This great fish or whale is really a minor character. He's not even a major character in this story. He's just a minor character, plays a tiny role in God's big work. His grand, great story. The purpose of this great fish is clear. Jonah falls apart descending deeper and deeper in his sin. What we'll see next week in his prayer is that he hits the bottom of the sea just when he couldn't get any lower. What does he do? Nothing. Nothing. Jonah reaches the point of death in his sin, swallowed up by a fish. It's over. But God, this is good, but God has sent the fish to swallow him in grace. God acts new life. Three days, three nights, he survives. The death chamber has become an instrument of grace. God's grace swallows him up. That's really good news for us. Can you see the gospel here? Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, this is the sign he has given them to show what will be fulfilled in him. And he is far greater than Jonah. Jonah was cast into the sea bearing his own sin and was swallowed up in God's grace. Jesus cast himself 
on the cross bearing our sin, the sin of his enemies, to swallow us up in his grace. While we were still sinners, rebellious, enemies of God, Scripture says, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves us. His mercy is breathtaking. That's a place for us to drown in. His mercy. Jesus says, just when you, when your sin can't get any worse, I'm coming for you. On the cross, in his death, Jesus swallowed up our sin, our apathy, our self-righteousness. And through His resurrection from the dead, He envelops us in grace. New life. Amen? By faith in Him, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Praise be to the glorious grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? Has He not swallowed us all up in His glorious grace? Has He not? Now how will we respond? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to You giving up, Lord. We are apathetic at times, drowsy, unfaithful, selfish, and even straight up mean, Lord. We think we're in control of our lives. We want control. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Someone in this room today is saying, yes, that's me. I'm so sorry. Lord, we thank you that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Would you swallow up our pride, our self-righteousness, our arrogance, our apathy, would you swallow that up today, Lord? Forgive us, O oh God. Help us to see and believe in your glorious gospel. We can't get out without you. We need you to swallow us up in your grace. Lord, help us to see and believe. Awaken us to faith and faithfulness. Fill us up and send us out as agents of peace and reconciliation, witnesses to the gospel that you would be glorified and our joy would be made complete. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this week ahead. God bless you.